All right, brother, I think that's a keeper. You know, he mentioned something in his, uh, yeah. Yeah, he mentioned something in his uh, introduction that he hadn't sang it because he was afraid of it. You know, um, that's courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is pushing through the fear. And sometimes the enemy wants to discourage us before we ever set out. But I'm thankful you got some victory over that, brother. And that's, that's a keeper. That's going to bless a lot of people. Bless me today. Bless you. Yeah. Amen. Yes. Well, I'm excited to be uh, getting back to preaching the life of David again. We were doing that last fall, and then we took a pause to observe Christmas. Um, we got through the book of 1 Samuel last year. You'll remember that um, we saw the death of Saul and... Now we are entering 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 1, looking forward to continuing the life of David, the shepherd king. Today I want to preach to you on this thought, King David from the pasture to the palace. Let's go back in time for a moment. September the 6th, 1901, the president of the United States was William McKinley. He was winding up a visit to the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. It was a lavish world's fair that showed off the great cultural and scientific strides that America had made over the past century. The president was in line. He was greeting well-wishers when a young political fanatic stepped up brandishing a pistol. The killer pulled the trigger and McKinley was shot twice at point-blank in the abdomen. Meanwhile... As they rushed McKinley away, he clung to life, and the vice president, one of my favorites, Teddy Roosevelt, was climbing Mount Marcy, the highest peak in the Adirondacks, with some close friends. As Roosevelt was coming down the mountain from the exhausting climb, he was met by park rangers who delivered to him the news of President McKinley's assassination. He quickly hiked to the nearest phone... <laughs> which in 1901, in-home phones, that was a rare thing. He made contact with the White House and then immediately boarded a train for the president's bedside in Buffalo. Somber and apparently lost in his thoughts, Roosevelt barely spoke to anyone on the train ride. Then when it arrived, he was mobbed by reporters and newspaper men, but he remained in seclusion in a private car. He was whisked away to the bedside of McKinley and then he was taken after his death into a separate room where he took the oath of office. He then issued his first proclamation to the press as president. He said, quote, The administration of the government will not falter in spite of this terrible blow. It shall be my aim to continue absolutely unbroken the office of the president for the peace, prosperity, and honor of our beloved country. McKinley did not die instantly. He lingered for several days, eight days, in and out of consciousness. But, of course, as history would have it, Roosevelt did become the president. And as one historian put it, he said, Thus Teddy Roosevelt, at the age of 42, became the youngest president in the nation's history up to that time, though he arrived at the White House by accident. Leaders are made and broken in crucibles such as those. Could you imagine 
putting yourself in Teddy Roosevelt's position, the weight and the responsibility that comes with suddenly being thrust into power. One moment you're enjoying a vacation, a hike, a time with friends, and then the next moment, grim news of death, and now the weight of the world is on your shoulders. There's another one who knew about that, David. For in one life-changing moment, he went from being a fugitive, Israel's most wanted man, to being the king. And as news came to David that Saul was now dead, and Israel's crown belonged to him, I'm sure the weight of the world was heavy on his shoulders. Didn't Shakespeare write, uneasy rests the crown on the king's head. Well, we're here at 2 Samuel. It opens one epoch in David's life and closes another one. Finally, here his promotion day has arrived. David has come a long way from watching over his father's sheep in the pasture to now he rules in the palace. Ever since Samuel, go all the way back to 1 Samuel 16, when the prophet Samuel drenched his head with anointing oil, David has thought of this moment when now people would address him as your majesty. Now before we get back into David's life, there are some important basics to recover. The books of First and Second Samuel recount the careers of Israel's first two kings. In fact, look at the chart here on your screen and you'll see that. In 1 Samuel, we read about the life of Saul as king. In 2 Samuel, we read about the death of Saul. In 1 Samuel, David starts as a shepherd. But in 2 Samuel, David starts as king. 1 Samuel traces David's rise. And in 2 Samuel, as we study over many weeks, we're going to see David's fall. David in 1 Samuel was running from Saul, and we'll see a mirror to that in 2 Samuel. David will end up running from one of his own children. He'll be running from Absalom. The whole theme of 1 and 2 Samuel, you could summarize it, is this. The search for a king. Saul failed them, and David did a little bit better than Saul, but ultimately he would fail at wearing the crown. Ultimately, though, they both would make a mess of things. And the shortcomings of these kings are going to point prophetically forward to the great Messiah King, Jesus Christ, the son of David, upon whom would be the title Messiah who would rule with perfect righteousness, justice, peace, and love. And so we've been looking at the life of David, him as a type, if you will, as a prophetic preview of Jesus. Now in 2 Samuel we open up and the kingdom is in limbo. The question on everybody's mind is now that Saul is dead, what kind of king is David going to be? And in this passage, what we're going to see are several qualities that David exhibited that he showed at this critical time of transition. And we're going to learn three things that God did in David's life to prepare him to be king. Do you know God is preparing you also? God is shaping you, He's molding you, He's transforming you, child of God, to be less like yourself and more like Christ. In fact, this whole life is a dress rehearsal for eternity. He's preparing you for something. Something greater, something beyond what you might imagine right now. 
But the same things that God used in David's life to prepare him to be king, God is preparing you as well. And we're going to see the parallel here. But I want to point out in the morning's message three attributes that led to David's big promotion as he goes from the pasture now to the palace. The first one is this. David was promoted after he was tested in his integrity. He's promoted after he was tested in his integrity. Now, several times in his life, God tests David's character, and the instrument that he uses is none other than Saul. Saul is like sandpaper in the hand of a master carpenter. God is using the coarseness of Saul to refine and smooth David's imperfections. You'll remember for about 15 years, David is a king in waiting. He's been anointed. He's been chosen by God. But in those intervening years, David has been ducking and dodging and hiding in caves from Saul Saul who wanted David to be dead. And now the moment has finally come in 2 Samuel 1. The news has arrived. Saul is no more. Here we find God's final test for David from the life of Saul. And that is this. How will David respond to the death of his enemy? Read with me 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he answered him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Verse 5, And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I said to him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the amulet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And then David took hold of the clothes of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until the evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." The reality, the weight of Saul and Jonathan's death comes on David like a ton of bricks. And you can imagine it would have floored David as much as when Roosevelt heard about McKinley being shot or when the news of JFK's assassination went across the nation. And David's reaction is stunning to me. It's so unnatural considering all that he has been through. After all, Saul is the man who tried on multiple occasions to pin David to the wall. This is the man who chased him down from one cave to another 
and made David's life difficult. This was his sworn enemy. And why isn't David dancing with delight? This is the greatest news for him since, well, since the crowd sang their song. David has killed his 10,000 and Saul his thousands. I'm reminded of Proverbs 24 and 17, which says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. David was a man of integrity. And David viewed the death of Saul as the tragic end of a wasted life. Oh, what, what could have been of Saul's life? He could have been a great king. He could have led Israel to higher heights. But he wasted his life on bitterness and, and pettiness and revenge and cowardice. And then not to mention, David also lost his beloved friend in the battle, Saul's son, Jonathan. We further see evidence of David's integrity by the way that he reacts to this message, by also how he administered justice to this Amalekite soldier who brings Saul's artifacts into the camp. Notice what happens in verse 13. David said to the young man who had told him, Where did you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. His first order is king. An execution. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. What is going on here? Why does David act this way? Well, remember, as the audience, we have insider information that maybe this battlefield survivor doesn't know. Namely, it's that he's a liar. Remember, if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 31, that's where we read the death of Saul. And Saul died by committing suicide, do you remember? He falls on his sword. And yet, we have a soldier who comes claiming to come from that camp, and he says that he ended Saul's life in the request of what is, in essence, a mercy killing, right? Put me out of my misery. Well... What's going on here? Why does David act the way he does? Why does he kill this soldier? Well, the Bible doesn't go into those details, but you have to read between the lines and look at the context. You can understand David's decision. This guy's a double agent. He made up this story because he's thinking David will be glad to hear the news that his enemy is dead. After all, that's how you and I would probably react. That's how the flesh would react, right? If your mortal enemy died and you found out about it, there may be that little hidden part of you that would rejoice. And this man is thinking that's the way David is going to react. And so he's thinking, maybe I can get in good with the new king by delivering the personal effects of his enemy and thus I get an attaboy, a pat on the back, and I look good in the new king's eyes but David is wise David is a man of integrity he sees through the ruse in fact I love what Warren Wiersbe wrote about this in his commentary he said quote if the story he told was true then the man had murdered God's anointed king and if the story was not true the fact that the Amalekite fabricated the tale about killing the king revealed the depravity 
of his heart. So David judges wisely in this instance, and he's tested one last time in his integrity by the man Saul and by the soldier. David did his best to handle Saul's death with total integrity. And rather than celebrating the death of an evil man, David lamented over what might have been, and he mourned over this tragic loss of life. Friend, that, that, that preaches to me. Does it to you? We ought to mourn the death of the wicked. We ought to mourn the death of our enemies because here's the worst case scenario, friend, that they take their last breath here on earth and they go into a Christless eternity. And friend, that's something that you and I would never wish upon anybody. God said in Ezekiel, He said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so this is a gut check. This is a heart check to me as I read it. And I think about some of the people down through my life who have been against me, who have worked against me, who have spread gossip and slander and said things about me that wasn't true. And the wrestling match that took place in my heart. And as I read this, I think, oh, I've thought evil things before. And I've been so unlike Christ in those moments. I read this week this, the testimony of of Bud Welch. Here's what happened in his life. In 1995 of April, Bud Welch's 23-year-old daughter Julie was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. I remember that. I was in fifth grade when it happened. The Oklahoma City bombing perpetrated by Timothy McVeigh. 168 deaths and 680 injuries. What a senseless, evil, wicked thing. Bud Welch lost his daughter. He wrote of his raw emotions. He said, Three days after the bombing, as I watched Tim McVeigh being led out of the courthouse, I hoped someone in the high building with a rifle would shoot him dead. We can understand that, can't we? He said, I wanted this man to fry. In fact, if I could have been there, I would have killed him myself had I the chance. Mr. Welch then said that he descended into depression. He became an alcoholic to try and cope with the pain of the loss of his daughter and his need for justice to be done. And then one day as he looked over the wreckage of the Murrah building which was destroyed in that explosion, he said he had an epiphany. He decided that the only way that he could find some kind of closure to this tragedy was go and talk to Timothy McVeigh's father, Bill McVeigh. So he did. He set up an appointment. He went and talked with Timothy McVeigh's father, a man named Bill. For hours, the two hurting fathers shared their pain. They cried, they hugged. And here's what Bud Welch said happened next. He said, quote, As I walked away from the McVeigh house, I realized that until that moment, I had walked alone. But now a tremendous weight had lifted from my shoulders. He said, I had found someone who was a bigger victim of the bombing than I was. About a year, he said, before the execution, God helped me forgive Timothy McVeigh in a letter I wrote to him. And truthfully, he said, it was more of a release for me rather than for him. This passage gets down to the nitty-gritty of life. Because you've got people that are against you. You've got enemies. You've got people who've done ill against you. And this passage challenges us 
to look at this as a test of our integrity? Will we descend into bitterness and anger and retribution? Or will we allow Christ to heal us? Will we take a page from David's book and mourn rather than rejoice? So here's the principle I take away. I wrote this down in my notes coming up on the screen. A test of integrity is choosing not to harm those who have harmed us. You've been hurt. You've been done bad against. You've been slandered. You've been harmed. It's a test of your integrity of how you react to that. And a great indicator of what is in our heart is what comes out when we hear bad news about our enemies. At that moment, we have a choice. We can rejoice at their misfortune or we can have pity and compassion as Jesus did as He hung on the cross, bleeding His life away, looking down on the people who did the greatest harm, the greatest atrocity ever committed. And He said, Father, forgive them. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying it's going to be something uh, that will come to you in your natural state. That's why I say forgiveness is not natural, it's supernatural. And so David was tested in his integrity. That's what God did before he was promoted. He tested him in his integrity. One last time by the news of Saul's death. Then there's a second way that God prepared him for the palace. Number two, David was or promoted after he was tempered by adversity. He was tested in his integrity. He was tempered by adversity. Now, the last half of 2 Samuel chapter 1 is called the Song of the Bow. And essentially, it's, it's David's funeral dirge that he sings in honor of Saul and Jonathan. Yes, you, you heard that right. He sings a hymn dedicated to his enemy. In modern day, we would call this a eulogy. The main theme of this poem, you're going to see it three times, is, oh, how the mighty have fallen. David repeats it in verse 19, verse 25 and 27. Let's read. Start with me, verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. And he said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Your mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you. Nor field of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain. From the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than the lions. Your daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Oh, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Wow, what a song. Now, once again, we see in amazement 
that as David writes and sings this song dedicated to Saul and Jonathan, he makes no mention of Saul's glaring faults and sins. Right? D- David could have written a whole stanza in there about dodging spears that Saul had thrown in his direction. He could have wrote about Saul's cowardice and Saul's evil and Saul's visit to the witch of Endor, but he doesn't mention any of that stuff in his funeral song. He takes this opportunity to remember this man positively in his life. And I think that David teaches us something so important in this passage. And it's this. I know it sounds strange, but it was through Saul that God was working mightily in David's life. You say, how preacher? How could such a wicked and wayward and cowardly man be used for good in the life of his servant? But notice this, Saul was God's instrument to prepare David for the throne. If David was the diamond in the rough, then Saul was God's chisel to tap away at David's character, to temper him in adversity, to expose the rough edges, to smooth those away, to prepare him to be a mighty man of leadership. And God had to take him through the wilderness. And God had to help him deal with difficult, impossible people like Saul to prepare him. You see, God had chosen David to be king, but He had also chosen Saul to be the unwitting instrument to prepare David for that great office that he would hold to one day. I've wrote about it before in in one of my devotions, but a person like Saul, you know what you call them? Sandpaper people. Amen? These are folks that you know well. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. They're in your life. They're abrasive. They're irritating. And they have the unique ability to always rub you the wrong way. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Sometimes they're critical. They're judgmental. Their words are harsh. They're impossible sometimes to deal with. They're exhausting when you're around them. You just say, I've I, I got to get away from this person. I'm pulling my hair out here. And you pray, God, please change their heart. God, please change their heart. And nothing changes. Why? Seems like they only get worse. And you think, why are these people in my life? Why was Saul in David's life? Because God is shaping this man. God is shaping you. They're not there by accident. They're there by appointment. As God's sanctifying agent in your life. As a test. As a trial. God uses these people to to reveal in us the places where we fall short and where we need Christ and where we need forgiveness and mercy and where we need extra grace. And if it wasn't for these people, we'd think, I got it all worked out. I got it all figured out. Bless God, He ought to be glad I'm on His team. Right? We can get puffed up in pride. But God put sandpaper people in our lives just as He allowed Saul to try and test David. Why? Because God's preparing you. God's shaping you. God's making you into something that maybe you wouldn't have chose on your own. But remember, He's the potter and we're the clay. He's the one who makes the pathway. And we have to deal with it. You know, Spurgeon, I've 
preached often on him, his exploits, his preaching, the anecdotes from his life. In his heyday, Charles Spurgeon was the most beloved and also the most hated preacher in London. You can imagine that. The people who sat under his preaching thought he was a spiritual giant. But you know who hated him? The media. The newspaper reporters. The people who studied him and, and, and wrote about him and told awful, slanderous, false things about him in the newspaper. Remember in the 1800s in London, they didn't have social media, but they had the newspaper. By the way, that still goes on today. You may love your pastor. You may pray for your pastor. You may gain blessing from his message. But let me assure you, there are people who don't like me. Twice during his ministry in, in 1854 and in 1866, London was struck by a deadly outbreak of cholera. Thousands died. Then early one morning at 3 a.m., a messenger was sent to Spurgeon's house. He was summoned to the bedside of a man dying of cholera. To his surprise, when Spurgeon arrived, he discovered that the man was not of his church, he was not a parishioner, but it was a newspaper man who had viciously attacked him and slandered him in his writing. And yet in his dying hour, this harsh, godless man called upon who? The preacher! to come and give him some kind of comfort. The man expired just moments after Spurgeon arrived. But you know who was there? The man's widow. And Spurgeon was able to minister the gospel to that man's wife by the bedside. And he said, what a reminder of why God has placed unlovable people in our lives. Friend, they may oppose you, they may spread false and slanderous things about you. They may fight with you over every kind of discussion, whether it's spiritual or political or cultural. You may be on opposite ends of the spectrum. But I'm telling you that if you live a Christ-centered life, a life of integrity, a life uh, under the uh, authority of Jesus Christ, something's going to happen in their life one day and the bottom's going to fall out and they're going to be looking for some kind of hope, some kind of mercy, some kind of comfort. And guess who they're going to call? they're going to call the person who prayed for them the person who tried to preach to them the person who tried to love them through a layer of mud that's why sandpaper people are in your life what credit Jesus said do you get it give do you get if you love people that love you in return but what the gospel does is the gospel ministers through the same paper people, through the hurt, through the pain, through the ill things that they have done in your life. And friend, I can tell you all the aggravation, all the frustration, all the pain, all the hurting words, it would be worth it after all if you got the opportunity to lead that sandpaper person to Christ. Amen? That's why God has them in your life because you know what? They need Jesus. And you're the evangelist to them. You're the David to their soul. So here's a major takeaway. A test of adversity is choosing to praise God for the good despite the evil. David had a lot of 
terrible things done to him by Saul. And yet in this funeral dirge, he chooses to see the good despite the evil. What a perspective that we can take. Choosing the good despite the evil. And then thirdly, and I wrap up with this. Number three, David was promoted after he trusted God for the victory. He was promoted after he was tested in his integrity, tempered by adversity, and then he was promoted after he trusted God for the victory. Read with me chapter 2, just briefly. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go? And he said to Hebron. And so David went up there, and his wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, and every one of the household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. This whole process is now coming to completion in David's life. He's gone from the pasture, now he's moving to the palace. And what David had to do through that 15 years of waiting is trust God for the victory. And you know, when you are going through a long season of waiting, a long season of wilderness, a long season of dealing with difficulty, adversity, and tests, you know what that builds? Faith. Trusting God every day. God, I need you today. God, I need you for this trial I need you for this interview. I need you for this job. God, I need you for this bill. God, I need you today. Think of all the opportunities that David had to expedite his journey to the throne. He could have sped things up, obviously. You remember? He could have slit Saul's throat in the cave of Engedi. I mean, he had him right there. He could have snuck up behind him and flayed that, that guy. He could have got with Jonathan and said, Hey, Jonathan, your dad is a loser, man. Y'all know you know it. How about we hatch a conspiracy and overthrow him? He could have done that. But instead, you know what David does? This is so wise. He steps back and he said, God, this is your plan for me, not my plan. I was watching sheep when you sent Samuel to come find me. I didn't plan on this, so this is you. And he stepped back and he said, God, if this is your destination for me, then you're going to have to get the victory for me. You see what I'm saying here? He trusted God. Even when David was the outright king, the Bible says here he didn't rush off and claim total rule. He asked God, God, where do you want me to go? God, what do you want me to do? And it wasn't until he got a clear word from the Lord, in fact, seven years and six months will transpire from verse 1 of chapter 2 to verse 11 where he begins to move toward Jerusalem. David also trusts God for a fresh anointing. Did you know what it said in verse 4? Did you notice that? Read with me again. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Wait a second, David. I thought you were already anointed in 1 Samuel 16. He was. But you know what? He needed a fresh anointing. After all that David had been through, after all that had been done to him, after all the trial and trouble and tears 
And the psalm said he wrote in caves. He was weary. He was exhausted. He was spent. And, and I'm, I know what he's thinking. God, if this is your will for me, if I'm to be king now, then God, you're going to have to help me. Because I've lived through hell the past 15 years. God, I'm begging to you, I need a fresh anointing. Oh, that preaches to me as a pastor. Because sometimes I get up on Sunday morning and I think, I don't have very much to offer the people. God, I'm tired. I'm weary of the battle. Lord, I'm expent. I'm exhausted. And God, I need a fresh anointing today. Show me something from Your Word. Speak to me in the sweet hour of prayer. Oh, we can't live on yesterday's blessings. We can't touch yesterday's manna. We need a fresh anointing in this preacher's life and in your life and the life of this church. And oh God, in this nation, we need a spiritual awakening. You need a fresh anointing today? After all you've been through in 2022, all the battles you fought, all the adversity, all the family drama, all the marital conflict, all the junk that you dealt with over a year, and you come to church today and you say, Pastor, I'm weary. Pastor, I'm spent. I know I'm supposed to be hopeful today, but I just need a touch from God. Oh, praise God. David was anointed again. And friend, you can receive the blessing of a fresh anointing, a fresh move of God in your life. of wind from another world that blows over the dying embers of your heart and says, you just keep going a little bit further, child of God. Oh, I've felt it a hundred times in my ministry. When I've needed, God's been there. David waited on God and trusted God for the next step. And here's the principle. Write this down. A test of victory is trusting God to fulfill His will His way. You want victory? Of whatever trial you're going through, let God do it His way. Not David's way. Not Derek's way. Or Clifford's way. David would later write this in the Psalm. Psalm 130 and verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for in His Word I put my hope. And when we wait on God, I told Brother Stacy this a couple weeks ago. When we wait on God, God does all the heavy lifting for us. So He clears the way and all you have to do is step into it. David didn't have to do anything to get Saul out of the way. God took care of it in His way, in His timing. And all he had to do was step into the promotion that God had for him. And so here's my message to you today. If you're in that season of waiting, if you're having difficulty through adversity, and you're being tested in your integrity, there are some things in our lives that are so big, you can't move them. You can't open the door. You can't get that difficult person's heart to change. But I'm telling you that if you will wait on God, His will and His way, He can give you that victory that you can't achieve through your own ingenuity. God can do it. He'll do all the heavy lifting so that when the moment comes, you step into it. You see, because God's got a plan. God's plan isn't just to keep you in the pasture. God's plan isn't just to have you struggle by and 
and live on the level of mediocrity. He's got a plan. He's got a pathway for you to lead you from the promise to the fulfillment. And here's my message to you. Trust the process. Whatever the process is, however long it takes, no matter how much discomfort it brings into your life, trust the process because I guarantee you that the view from the palace is sweet. When you can look back over the faithfulness of God in your life and see what all He's brought you through and see how He met your need and see how He answered prayer and think about, man... This is who I used to be 10 years ago, 5 years ago. But look at how far God has brought me. I don't think that way anymore. I don't pray like I used to pray. I don't think about the loss the way I used to. I'm in the palace and I can view the pasture. And oh, it was a hard road to get here. But thank you God for sending me around the long way. Because you never left me. You were always by my side. And I'm different today. I'm better today because you took me from the pasture to the palace. Amen? God is making a path for you through the wilderness, through adversity, through death, and through difficult people. Trust the process. You ever heard of Louis Zamperini? His story is told in a movie in a book called Unbroken. If you haven't seen the movie, you need to see it. It's powerful. Louis Zamperini had a saw in his life. But Louis was a famous Olympic athlete before World War II broke out. And then in 1942, he became a Japanese POW. His plane was shot down over the Pacific. He was captured by the Japanese and he fell into the hands of a cruel... Japanese taskmaster who was head over this POW camp. His name was Mutsuhiro Wanatabe. He tortured Louis Zamperini mercilessly. Well, we know how history goes. The war ended. Louis was liberated. He came through the war. He went home. In 1947, a little preacher set up a tent in Los Angeles named Billy Graham. Louis Zamperini went to that revival meeting. He got gloriously saved. But he had all this baggage, all this hurt, all this PTSD from a Saul. In 1998, he was given the honor of carrying the Olympic torch. He went to Japan. And he wanted to visit Wanatabe, or what the men called him, the bird. He wanted to tell him about Jesus. How he could be saved and how he had forgiven him. He wrote a letter to the people of Japan when he delivered that Olympic torch. Here's what this man said, Louis Zamperini. He says to Mr. Wanatabe, as a result of my POW experience under your punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. This caused my life to crumble, but thanks to God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I've committed my life to Jesus Christ, and love has replaced the hate that I used to have for you. I forgive you. And then he said, I ask that you think about Christ, and that you will find the forgiveness that I found from a great Savior. 
Now think of the thousands of people who heard that testimony. Who heard the gospel for the first time. Louis Zamperini never got a chance to meet the bird again. But all the good that that message did. And isn't that like David? David who showed integrity and got victory over bitterness in his life. And remember I told you, David is an Old Testament preview of Jesus. Here's how. Like David, Jesus was God's anointed Messiah, though few recognized His right to rule. He came into His own and His own received Him not. Like David, Christ was reviled, hated, and persecuted by the rulers of His day. Like David, Christ never took the opportunity to harm His enemies. Like David, Jesus was elevated by God through death. David was elevated after the death of Saul and Jesus was elevated after His own death and His resurrection from the grave. And like David, Jesus was a king in waiting. And after many years, David is finally allowed to wear the crown. And someday soon, our king in waiting will break through the clouds and he'll come riding out on glory to receive his church. And he'll be a king in waiting no more. What about you? You can make him the king of your life today. As our musicians come and as we prepare for invitation, Jesus... Demand surrender and submission. Would you enthrone Him on the seat of your heart and allow Him to rule from within? When He does, you can forgive. When He does, you can deal with sandpaper people. When He does, He gives you peace and joy and heaven. I don't know where you are today, but if this message spoke to you in any way, I invite you to stand. Our musicians are going to be playing. Preston's going to be singing. We're going to be doing fresh anointing. Never mind. Change your plans. You need that touch from the Lord today. That fresh anointing. The altar is open. I'm here. I want to pray with you. I want to see God give you the victory. I want to see God bring somebody out of the wilderness today. Oh, He's a good God. Make your way down and meet Him today.